History Helmet. Hello and welcome to the History Helmet podcast. The podcast that, as you by now may know, likes to look history right in the eye and ask, what are you looking at? This week, the sinking of the Titanic. So, this tragedy, this disaster, happened 110 years ago, but still is very well known and talked about, reported on and followed by countless people around the world. Let's get into this episode with some numbers. It's a numbers game. Some numbers to represent the Titanic. When the Titanic sank, spoiler alert, it did sink. When the Titanic sank, more than 1,500 lives, 1,500 lives were lost. That's almost two-thirds of the people who were on board. The iceberg that the Titanic struck was 100,000 years old. The length of the Titanic was 269.1 meters. That's 882 feet, 9 inches. The Titanic used 825 tons of coal per day. The cost of building the Titanic in 1912 was $7.5 million US. That's roughly about $400 million in today's money. Every 24 hours, the Titanic used 14,000 gallons of drinking water. There were a staggering 40,000 fresh eggs in the ship's provisions. The cost of the most expensive ticket you could buy on the Titanic is, in today's money, $61,000 US. The number of lifeboats the Titanic was equipped to carry was 64, but the number of lifeboats she was actually carrying was just 20. We'll get into that a little bit later. The Titanic took two hours and 40 minutes to sink after hitting the iceberg. The temperature of the seawater in the area where the Titanic sank was minus two degrees. So in that temperature, you'd be lucky to survive more than 30 minutes. Here's a eye-opening figure. 12,600 feet. That's the depth at which the Titanic, now the wreck of the Titanic, sits. That's almost four kilometers down. That's like seven One World Trade Centers stacked on top of each other, or twice the depth of the Grand Canyon. 73. That's the number of years after the sinking that the Titanic remained lost in the Atlantic. A team of American and French divers discovered the wreck in 1985. Okay, so let's get into it. What happened? Well, it's well known that the Titanic sank on her maiden voyage, the first voyage 
she ever made. And that voyage started just after noon on April 10th, 1912, when the Titanic left port, the port of Southampton, on the first stage of her journey to New York. Three hours after leaving Southampton in England, the Titanic docked at Cherbourg Harbour in northwestern France, where some passengers embarked. Her next stop was Queenstown, now Cove, that's C-O-B-H, in Ireland, where the Titanic arrived around lunchtime on April 11th. The Titanic took on more passengers and supplies were transferred into the hold. Now the Titanic moved out into the open expanse of the Atlantic. There were 892 crew members aboard, as well as 1,320 passengers. The full capacity of the Titanic was actually 2,435 passengers, but it was the quiet season and a coal miners' strike that had happened recently had had a detrimental influence on shipping from the UK. On board were the super-rich millionaires such as John Jacob Astor and Benjamin Guggenheim. But the majority of those on board were poor migrants from countries as varied as Armenia, Ireland, Italy, Sweden, Syria and Russia, all heading west following the promise of a new life in the new world. Also on board was the ship's designer, Thomas Andrews. The captain of the ship was Edward Smith, who, at 62, was the most senior captain of the White Star Line. That's the company which owned the Titanic and ran it. He had been sailing for 40 years and had also captained the RMS Olympic just before he was transferred to take charge of the Titanic. Interestingly, most of the crew who served under Smith aboard the Titanic were not actually trained sailors, but were made up of engineers, firemen or stokers whose job it was to run and maintain the massive engines which powered the Titanic. There were also stewards and galley staff who were there to serve the needs of the passengers. It's more than regrettable that professional sailors made up only 5% of the crew aboard the Titanic, and that the vast majority of these had only boarded at Southampton, and were therefore pretty unfamiliar with the layout of the ship. Startlingly, the Titanic had set sail with a fire burning in one of her coal bins. The fire burned for about two weeks, but had been brought under control by the 14th of April. During that fateful day, the weather changed from cold biting winds and moderate seas in the morning to a sea like glass with good visibility by evening. Smooth seas and good visibility, as any sailor worth their salt will tell you, are the best conditions for a steamship, especially an ocean liner. So, on April 14th, 1912, six warning messages relating to icebergs 
were received in the Titanic's radio room. These messages came from other ships in the area and told of a line of hazardous drifting ice, many miles long and several miles wide. Passengers aboard the Titanic began to notice this ice for themselves by late afternoon. Now, here is the rub. The winter of 1911 to 12 had been unusually clement and, as a result, great numbers of icebergs, far more than was usual, were abound in the waters off the west coast of Greenland. These icebergs were drifting southwards into the path of the Titanic. The Titanic was sailing in waters, experiencing its worst ice conditions for half a century. They were basically moving at speed through a stretch of water many square miles in size that was akin to a minefield. The lookouts, whose job it was to look out <laughs> for icebergs, were completely unaware of this fact. Why was this? Well, a simple and tragic lack of communication. The radio operators were not giving the lookouts all the warning messages they received because the radio operators aboard the Titanic, like the radio operators on all other ocean liners at the time, were not sailors. They didn't even work for the White Star Line. They worked for the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company and their main job was to relay messages received for the well-to-do passengers on board. Telling the ship's crew about weather reports was a bothersome business. Furthermore, even if the lookouts had had the information about the iceberg minefield, they were still without binoculars. Surely, I hear you say, there were binoculars aboard the Titanic. Yes, there were. There were binoculars on board, and they were safely stored in a locker up in the crow's nest, where the lookouts were. Unfortunately, the locker was locked, and its key wasn't on board. In a simple twist of fate, able seaman and lookout David Blair, who had been due to serve on the Titanic, was reassigned to another ship just before the Titanic set sail. He left the Titanic in such a rush, he absent-mindedly took the key to the binoculars locker with him. The key was in his pocket. Imagine this scene. Aboard another ship, up in the crow's nest, and towards the end of his shift, David Blair hears the news of the Titanic sinking from his shift replacement. He is all at once both relieved that he was not on board and aghast to how close he came to being one of those poor unfortunates thrown into the dark and freezing waters. He is in shock and takes a minute to compose himself before he can trust his legs not to buckle while climbing the ladder down to his cabin, almost 30 metres below. He reaches into his pocket for some tobacco with which to make a cigarette to calm his nerves and his shaking fingers find the sturdy brass key to the locker with the binoculars inside. What went through his mind at that point? A side note here, 95 years later, in 2007, 
the key to the crow's nest locker and a postcard Blair had written voicing his dismay at being transferred off the Titanic's maiden voyage sold at auction for $145,000. Back to the Titanic and it's April the 14th, 1912. At 9 a.m., the RMS Coronia sent a message to the Titanic reporting bergs, growlers. Growlers are smaller fragments of ice and are roughly the size of a truck or a grand piano and field ice. Captain Smith thanks the Coronia for the information. Then between 1.40 and 1.45 p.m., two more messages. The first from RMS Baltic was a repeated communique from a Greek ship, the Athenia. That was to say that she had been passing icebergs and large quantities of field ice. Like the report in the morning, this message was also accepted with appreciation from Captain Smith. Smith then shared this report with the chairman of the White Star Line, J. Bruce Ismay, who had come along for the Titanic's maiden voyage. In light of this report, Smith gave the order for the Titanic to take a new course, which would take it farther south. The second message was from a German ship, the SS America. This message was never passed on to Captain Smith or any of the other officers on the bridge of the Titanic. Why? Well, we've already talked about the poor communication between the radio room and the sailors on board, but it is a fact that the radio operators were very busy with messages for the passengers, the rich passengers, that is. And on top of that, they were occupied with the task of fixing the radio equipment, which had been malfunctioning. Later that evening, two more messages. At 7.30, the SS Californian sent a message describing three large bergs. And two hours later, the steamer Mesaba sent this account. And I quote, Saw much heavy pack ice and a great number of large icebergs. These messages never even left the cluttered desk of the Titanic's radio room and were lost amongst the glut of messages coming in for the first-class passengers. Remember, the radio guys were not really proper sailors. They were nerds. They were techies who had no idea of the importance of these iceberg warnings. They were also working under pressure as the radio had been on the fritz the day before, and there was a huge backlog of passengers' telegrams to clear. They were attempting to do this through the relay station at Cape Race, on the Canadian island of Newfoundland. The sixth and final warning came at 10.30 and was from one Cyril Evans of the British ship, the SS Californian. They had also sent a message earlier in the day. The Californian had stopped for the night in an ice field some miles away, rather than risk navigating their way through it in the dark. 
This was the final straw for the Titanic radio operator, Jack Phillips. He had become fed up with the interruptions to his work and cut off the communique before it was fully delivered. He sent a message back to the Californian which read, Shut up, shut up. I'm working Cape Race. Even though the crew knew they were in icy waters, they did not slow the ship's speed and maintained their pace of 22 knots. A knot is one nautical mile per hour, which is roughly 1.15 regular miles per hour. So the Titanic was traveling at about 25 miles per hour, or 41 kilometers per hour, just shy of her maximum speed. Though considered foolhardy and unwise in hindsight, the Titanic's high speed through these waters was standard practice at the time. In these situations, ships used to heavily rely upon lookouts in the crow's nest and on the bridge to spot icebergs in their path. They would go hell for leather, then slow down and turn when the need arose. Time was all important, like the Japanese bullet trains today. Arriving on time was paramount for these ocean liners. Everything else could suffer, but not the schedule. The Titanic, on its maiden voyage, did not want to arrive late in New York. And what's more, hitting an iceberg wasn't even considered to be that big a deal. Close calls and actual collisions with icebergs were not uncommon. And hitherto, no ship had sunk as a result of a brush with an iceberg. Five years before the Titanic set sail, a German liner had rammed an iceberg in the same waters, endured a crushed bow, but did not stop and went on to conclude her voyage. The same year, Captain Edward Smith, the captain of the Titanic, stated in a newspaper interview that he personally could not, quote, imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Founder here means to fill up with water and sink. Smith said that modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Well, <laughs> talk about famous last words. Could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. And then he's aboard a ship that founders big time. As the Titanic sailed on, oblivious to her destiny, the lurking giant some little distance ahead, the majority of passengers had retired for the evening, and First Officer William Murdoch had taken command of the bridge. Fred Fleet and Reg Lee were up in the crow's nest on lookout. They were trying to keep warm in the freezing wind whipping by them. The ocean was so calm and smooth that the reflection of the stars could clearly be seen. Again, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but we now know that unusually calm waters, such as was noted by those on the Titanic that night, is a warning sign of pack ice. That is, a vast expanse of huge pieces of floating ice moving together in a nearly continuous mass. There was also no moon that night, the only light being starlight and the ship's own light. The false sense of security given by the calm sea meant that there were no white-peaked waves 
to be seen breaking against the bulk of the iceberg. Ironically, if the waters had been rougher, the Titanic probably would have seen the iceberg and had time to change course to avoid it. The lookouts in the crow's nest, however, were aware of the ice around them and were told to keep their eyes peeled, especially for small ice and growlers. At 11.30, 10 minutes before the Titanic hit the iceberg, up in the crow's nest, Fleet and Lee noticed a slight haze on the horizon up ahead of the ship, but they did not make anything of it. It is possible that what Fleet and Lee actually saw was some kind of mirage. This kind of phenomenon can happen when cold waters meet warm air, very much like a water mirage in the desert. In calm conditions, such as those on the night of April 14th, a layer of warmer air can rest over a layer of colder, dense air, forming a wall of haze that acts like a refracting lens, projecting false images. It's likely that this wall of haze projected a false horizon above the true horizon, making the iceberg impossible to see until it was too late. 11.39pm, Fred Fleet sees an iceberg right in the Titanic's path and frantically rings down to the bridge. He tells 6th Officer James Moody. Moody tells 1st Officer William Murdoch, who in turn orders Robert Hitchens, the quartermaster, to steer the ship to the left, port, and reverse the engines. It is thought that Murdoch was attempting a port-around manoeuvre, in which the bow, that's the front end of the ship, is swung left, out of the path of the collision, then the stern, that's the back end, is swung out the same way. It's kind of like when you're driving a car on icy roads. You brake and steer left to avoid hitting a car in front of you. The back of the car begins to skid right, so you then turn the steering wheel right to straighten the back end up and avoid the crash. Except imagine it took 30 seconds for your car's wheels to respond to the steering wheel being turned, and that the very effectiveness of your steering wheel was greatly reduced when applying the brakes. 30 seconds is a long time to be steaming headlong towards a jagged wall of ice. The Titanic did turn, just in time to prevent the bow colliding with the iceberg, which, ironically again, the Titanic would have most likely survived. The lookouts on the ship breathed a sigh of relief as they saw no part of the ship hit the iceberg and felt no huge impact. They assumed they had gotten away with it. What they couldn't possibly know at that time was that as the Titanic passed the iceberg, it made contact with a jagged underwater ledge, which for seven long seconds slashed, scratched and dragged along the right-hand side, starboard, of the hull below the waterline, opening it up in places as you would open a can of soup. The Titanic had received her 300-foot-long death blow, 100 metres long. That's how long the gash was that the iceberg cut into the hull of the Titanic. Five minutes after the collision, 
every one of the Titanic's engines was stopped. The ship was now facing north and slowly drifting south. Captain Smith goes to assess the damage with Thomas Andrews, the ship's designer, and they realise that thousands of tonnes of seawater is starting to pour in through the holes in the hull. The ship was actually taking on water at a rate 15 times faster than it could pump it out. So the lower decks of the Titanic were divided into 16 empty compartments. Each one of these compartments was divided by a wall, or bulkhead, as they call them in the trade. Each compartment could be sealed off from its neighbour, both quickly and easily. The ship could stay afloat no trouble at all, with four of these compartments completely flooded. This is why the Titanic was considered unsinkable. The problem was that no one foresaw what would happen if more than four compartments flooded. Hmm. The bulkheads which divided the compartments were only watertight on the sides and at the bottom, not the top. So basically in the Titanic you have a boat-shaped ice cube tray with 16 separate sections. You place it on the surface of the water in a full bathtub and no surprise, it floats easily. Then you punch holes in the side of the front five sections of the ice cube tray. These sections start to take on water and the front end of the ice cube tray dips further and further down into the water allowing water to wash over the top of these compartments filling each one in turn and that is what I would call a sinkable ship. Less than three quarters of an hour after hitting the iceberg the Titanic had taken on almost 14,000 tons of water. Seeing that the first five compartments were flooded Thomas Andrews tells the captain straight that the ship is going to sink and gives it very accurately, weirdly accurately, about another two hours. Just after midnight, only 25 minutes after the collision, Captain Smith gives two orders, destined to be incompetently carried out. Order one is that the lifeboats be lowered and the passengers gathered ready to abandon ship. Remember, there are only 20 lifeboats aboard. Order two was for the radio operators to start sending distress calls to any ships in the area. The current position of the Titanic is given out incorrectly and resulted in ships attempting to help heading for a point some 15 miles away. Stewards on the ship went from cabin to cabin waking up sleeping passengers. The Titanic had no system for ship announcements and so this was the only way to do it. Here we see a big difference in the treatment of first-class passengers compared with all others. Stewards dealing with the far fewer number of first-class passengers were able to give individual assistance and guidance towards the boat decks. Second and third-class passengers were basically pointed towards the open doors, told to put on a life belt 
and get out. No one was saying anything at this point about the ship sinking. Why were there so few lifeboats aboard the Titanic? Well, it was not, as many think, a money-saving endeavour on behalf of the White Star Company or due to class prejudice. It was more a matter of practicality and aesthetics. In another astounding lack of foresight, it was thought that there would be no need to carry enough lifeboats to accommodate all passengers at once, as lifeboats were mostly used to transport people from the ship in distress to a rescue ship waiting close by. It was also believed that 68 lifeboats on board would clutter up the promenade deck and obscure the passengers' view of the seas. I wonder how many on board were aware, as surely Captain Smith was, that even if each lifeboat was filled to its maximum capacity, there would still be more than 1,000 people left on board the Titanic as she went down. In those seas, being refused permission to board a lifeboat was, for all intents and purposes, a death sentence. There is some discrepancy here regarding how Smith behaved. Survivors claim that Smith was cool, calm and collected, acting decisively whilst the crisis unfolded. It has also been claimed that once Smith realised what was going to happen to all those left on board, remember that most on board were either ignorant to the real danger or didn't want to believe the ship was sinking, he froze and was unable to function properly. I, I don't know if I believe that. A naval man with 40 years experience, surely he would have stepped up. We have already heard that most of the crew on board were inexperienced and not even sailors. Perhaps this explains why that even the launching of the lifeboats was a complete cock-up. There had been no emergency drill training during the voyage, and most of those who were supposed to be in charge didn't even know what it was they were supposed to be doing. It's dark, it's cold, the ship is sinking into even colder waters, and there aren't enough lifeboats. And those you look to for help are no better informed than you are. Add to that the deafening noise of steam escaping from the ship, which made it almost impossible to hear what someone right next to you was saying. Basically, it's the worst situation imaginable aboard a ship. The officers in charge of the lifeboats being filled were Second Officer Lightola on the port side and First Officer Murdoch on the starboard. The well-known order of women and children first meant different things to these two men. Murdoch interpreted it as women and children first, then men. But Lightola believed it was women and children only. What an idiot. He actually lowered lifeboats with empty seats if there were no women or children waiting to board. But in fairness, I guess, neither man knew the safe capacity of the lifeboats and played it safe by lowering boats partially filled. If they had known, if they had had proper training, 
it's estimated a further 500 people could have been saved that night. For the passengers' part, they were reluctant to go into the lifeboats at first. I kind of get that. Step off this unsinkable huge luxury liner into a small wooden boat and we'll lower you 21 meters down into the dark waters below. Mm. Everyone thought the ship was unsinkable, so you can't really blame them for wanting to stay on board. A small number of women, couples and single men, 28 in all, were persuaded to board starboard lifeboat number seven, which was the first lifeboat to be lowered. After that, a lifeboat was lowered every two to three minutes on each side, but not without mishap. Some were almost capsized. Passengers were injured by the bustle of others around them, and one lifeboat almost landed on top of another, threatening to crush those on board. Ships in the area had been contacted by the radio operators, and some had replied, but the nearest of those contacted was the Carpathia, which was some 58 miles, that's at least four hours, away. The closest ship to the Titanic was actually just 12 miles away. This was the Californian. Remember the ship that the Titanic radio guy had told to shut up? Well, they had stopped for the night because of the hazardous ice, and the radio operator had left his post and headed for bed just 10 minutes before the Titanic hit the iceberg. The Titanic could actually be seen from the Californian. An officer on board the Californian saw five rockets, kind of fireworks, explode over the Titanic. He told the captain about it, but the captain decided it meant nothing. He didn't realize it was a distress signal. By now, you'd think that no one on board could have been in any doubt with regards to the peril they were all facing, but there were still those who refused to believe it, preferring instead to kid themselves that everything was somehow going to be all right. The industrialist Benjamin Guggenheim changed out of his life vest and sweater into top hat and evening dress and declared his wish to go down with the ship like a gentleman. Quite a different story for those not quite so well off. Up to now, hardly anyone from third class had made it up on deck, let alone been lucky enough to get onto a lifeboat. Hundreds were still trying to find their way through the labyrinth of corridors or stuck behind locked gates, which kept the undesirable third class passengers away from the first and second class areas. This segregation was not simply for social reasons, but was a requirement of the United States immigration laws, which mandated that third-class passengers be segregated to control immigration and to prevent the spread of infectious diseases. In at least some places, the Titanic's crew appear to have actively hindered and stopped the steerage passengers' escape. Some of the gates were locked and guarded by crew members, apparently to prevent the steerage passengers from rushing the lifeboats. Some did whatever they could to get to the boat deck. Others just threw up their arms and claimed it was in God's hands. I guess there are two kinds of animals that get caught in a trap. 
those who are prepared to gnaw off their own limbs to get away, and those who simply give up hope and wait for death. While passengers are waiting to board the lifeboats, the Titanic's band of musicians play on in the first-class lounge before later moving out onto the ship's deck. It's likely that they carried on playing until about 30 minutes before the ship sank. Not one of the eight musicians survived. It's now 2 a.m. Most of the lifeboats have been lowered and those left on board are getting desperate. Some stewards fire warning shots from revolvers into the air to keep the surging crowds of passengers from rushing the last of the lifeboats. The managing director of the White Star Line, J. Bruce Ismay, made sure he had a place on one of the lifeboats and is labelled a coward for the rest of his life for abandoning the ship. He claimed that there were no women and children around when he boarded, but the Titanic being his ship and all, come on, mate. By now, the bow of the Titanic is completely submerged, forcing the stern to lift up out of the water. Suddenly, the ship is thrown into absolute darkness as all the lights on board finally go out. Now, the last, the Titanic's death throes, 2.17 a.m., the Titanic breaks into two parts. The back of the ship gets pushed further and further out of the water. The ship's hull isn't strong enough to withstand the pressure and simply breaks in two. 2.19, the bow begins to sink. The front of the ship disappears beneath the surface. The remaining half of the Titanic follows soon afterwards. 2.24 a.m. The Titanic reaches the bottom of the ocean. Five minutes heading down. That's a long time. Especially if you are still on board. There were people trapped on the Titanic who were taken right to the bottom of the ocean. That's a horrible thought. The front half of the Titanic reaches the bottom first, followed by the back half two minutes later. And that's where it is today. Some witnesses claim to have seen Captain Edward Smith standing on the bridge of the Titanic just before the ship went down. Others claim he committed suicide with a pistol. The fact is, he died with the ship, though nobody really knows how. Thomas Andrews, the designer of the Titanic, was last seen in the first-class smoking room. In that room was a painting of a ship. He was just staring at it blankly. John Jacob Astor, the multimillionaire, saw that his wife and child were safely aboard a lifeboat and asked whether he may join them. He was refused and accepted his fate with dignity. The ship that saved the survivors of the Titanic was the Carpathia. The Carpathia had received the Titanic's distress signal, the one sent at midnight. It sailed at full steam all night and reached the survivors in the lifeboats and those clinging on to whatever debris they could. About 80 minutes after the Titanic went down, the Californian never responded at all, even though it was only a short distance away. Remember, the radio operator had gone to bed. 
the Carpathia set about rescuing those in lifeboats and also pulled some people from the water. The Carpathia would remain in service until 1918 when it was sunk by a German submarine. Of the 2,200 passengers and crew, 706 survived. 1,500 went into the water or never even made it onto the boat decks. Jeez, pretty heavy, pretty heavy. Who knows what those people went through. But after all that tragedy, um, let's, let's hear something a little more upbeat. Let's finish off with a, a story of one survivor who beat the odds. His story is absolutely remarkable. It's the story of the Titanic's chief baker, a scouser, a Liverpudlian. Um, his name was Charles Jogin. Jogin was in his cabin enjoying some whiskey when he actually felt the impact of the ship hitting the iceberg. Once it was clear that the lifeboats were to be launched, Jogin rallied his team of bakers to take food supplies for the lifeboats from the kitchens. Jogin himself got to the boat deck around half past midnight after he had helped round up third-class passengers who were reluctant to go up onto the boat deck. Jogin had been assigned the captaincy of lifeboat 10, but he arrived too late and that lifeboat was already being manned by two stewards. Lifeboat 10 was launched without Jogin, so he decided to go back below deck to resume drinking. He had a bottle of whiskey on the go that he was eager to get back to. He was a notorious heavy drinker, but had managed to keep his job on the high seas by never turning up for duty drunk. So after he quaffs some more whiskey, and who can blame him because as anyone who's ever been in such a situation as the sinking of a ship knows, there's no point in facing it sober. Jogin made his way, well-oiled at this point, to the stern and was one of those who managed to cling onto the rail at the back of the ship as the stern was lifted up. Eventually, as we know, the ship broke in two and the back end of the ship came crashing down. According to Jogin, he was the only one who managed to hang on throughout this entire ordeal. And as the rear end of the ship upped and sank, Jogin simply rode the back of the ship down like an elevator and entered the water, barely even getting his hair wet. Now, if his account is true, and it has been verified by others, that makes him the last survivor to have left the Titanic. He then spent two hours treading water and clinging on to an upturned lifeboat until he was picked up by the RMS Carpathia. He had nothing worse than swollen feet. He would later say that whilst in the water, waiting to be rescued, he hardly felt the cold at all. He gave evidence to the official government inquiry to the disaster in May 1912, then continued working as a baker on the high seas. He emigrated to the USA in 1920 and retired 
1944, after working on a World War II transport ship, Jogin died in a New Jersey hospital of pneumonia, aged 78, in 1956. So, is the James Cameron movie Titanic accurate? Um, yes and no. Because so many people died that night, hundreds of testimonies were lost, so inevitably that means that there are gaps in our knowledge of what actually happened aboard the Titanic. The story of Jack and Rose in the movie, and indeed their characters, are wholly fictitious. But there are also a lot of supporting characters who really were on the Titanic. The captain, for example, the ship's designer, um, the White Star Line executive, and, as we've heard, good old Charles Jogin. They're all in the movie. Cameron did his best to be true to history and, at the same time, present the audience with some kind of entertaining and emotive portrayal of events. All the details, sadly, we will never know. But the movie is a good place to start, and you could do a lot worse. In the 1985 film, Raise the Titanic, for example, in which the Titanic was actually raised, a feat of engineering which I think we are far, 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 far away from at the moment. The ship is brought to the surface and it's still in one piece. This was because this movie was released before the Titanic was discovered in two pieces, a year later in 1986. Well, what about the effect of the Titanic sinking on the rest of the world? Um, it made headlines, of course. It made headlines all around the globe. The unprecedented scale of the tragedy was deeply upsetting, as you can imagine. And it resulted in international anger at the seeming lack of care taken over safety regulations and the reported imbalance over help given to first-class passengers. As a direct result of the Titanic and the various inquiries carried out into what actually went wrong, in 1914, the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, uh, which has the acronym SOLAS, S-O-L-A-S, was formed. And from that time on, ships were legally bound to carry enough lifeboats for all passengers on board. Uh, their radio was also to be kept on at all times, providing a constant open line of communication and an international body to patrol the ice in those waters was set up. Monuments commemorating the Titanic were erected in the far-flung corners of the earth and money poured in from those kind souls wishing to provide something for the dependents of those who had died. The ship that was labelled unsinkable and at that time was not just the biggest passenger ship ever built, but the biggest ship ever, perhaps represented the rich and luxurious fruits of the Industrial Revolution, which had been changing the planet for more than a century. The dream that we could possibly tame and bring our world under control sank with the ship to the bottom of the Atlantic. It made people feel vulnerable, 
and small and reminded them that life, even for those who could afford a cabin aboard the Titanic, was ever fragile. And after all that, there are even those who believe that the Titanic never even actually sank. This is perhaps one of the most contentious and complex theories relating to the sinking of the Titanic and was proposed by a guy called Robin Gardiner in his 1998 book, Titanic, the ship that never sank? Gardiner doesn't contest that a ship did sink. He merely suggests that the ship that sank was not the Titanic, but her sister ship, the Olympic made to look like the Titanic in an attempt by her owners to pull off an elaborate insurance scam. It's nothing if not an interesting story. Um, You see, the Titanic was not quite the one-off legend that you would think it was. She was actually one of three sisters. The Olympic launched in 1910, Titanic launched in 1912, and the Britannic in 1914 all built in Belfast by Harland and Wolfe. That's the name of the shipyard, not just two blokes doing all the work. Except for one or two minor differences, the Olympic was almost an identical twin of the Titanic. In September 1911, the Olympic suffered extensive damage when it accidentally collided with a British warship, which had been designed and built specifically to cause maximum damage to any enemy ship it rammed. The blame for the accident was laid at the feet of the Olympic, even though various eyewitnesses told a different story, and as a result, the insurance company, Lloyds of London, refused to pay out on the claim. So now the White Star Line, already shelling out a ton of money to build the Titanic, were left with a ship that was going to be out of commission for a long time and cost them a fortune to fix. So here, according to Robin Gardiner, is what happened. Rather than take the financial hit, which would have hurt them very badly, some wily fox at the White Star Line hatched a scheme to disguise the Olympic as the Titanic involve it in some accident far out at sea and claim on the insurance that way. This theory has drawn a lot of ridicule from serious historians the world over, and it does seem to me to be a bit far-fetched and, unlike the Titanic, doesn't really hold water. But for each crackpot conspiracy theory, there will be someone willing to believe it. Having said that, money is a great motivator and a lot worse has been done for a lot less okay that's it for this week thanks for listening see you next time